So on the 17th of March, there's going to be a reflective day on St. Matthew's Passion in preparation for a performance that's going to take place in St. Paul's on the 21st. That's right. That's right, yeah. Okay, so tell us a little bit about Bach, the man, the person. Well, um, like a lot of composers, he's been rather sainted. Um, you know, we think... Um, uh, we, we, we tend to look at just his work and appreciate how wonderful it is and uh, we, we sometimes forget Bach the man so he fathered 20 children for example so he had quite a busy personal life um, and we know from recent research that's been done he had quite a difficult childhood and came, in, came into contact with some rather difficult um, uh, disciplinary problems at school which were rather harsh so um, but as, as a man, I think he's astonishing because he does have, I think of all the musicians that, that we've ever encountered in humanity, he has an ex astonishing mixture of humanity and sacred. He can embody them both. He's, he's, you know, he's brought up in Germany, the Germany of Luther. Mm. Um, uh, his hometown is particularly, um, particularly full of Luther, Luther further and, and love. Uh, and he carries that with him. And he's a man who writes no opera. Mm. So opera is the new concept of the Baroque period, emotion, expressing human emotion mm. in music. He doesn't produce any operas, unlike Handel, for example, uh, but uh, he pours all this emotion, the expression of emotion, into his, his other works, his instrumental works, and particularly his sacred works. So he's a pious man. He has a Christian faith? He has a Christian faith. Um, Pious, I don't know, I'm not, sure I'd, I, I'm not sure I'd go down that, because again, as I said, we tend to make composers and artists and poets sometimes, um, you know, we can put them on a pedestal. Mm. I'm, 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 I think he was religious, he undoubtedly had um, a religious faith and a fervour. Mm. Um, piety, I would expect so, from what we know of the circumstances and, mm. and what other people were doing. But very much a Protestant. Yes, very much a Protestant. And how does that show in the music? Well, he does write uh, a piece in Latin, his Mass in B minor, which is an interesting statement. As he, he sets it in Latin and he sets the full Roman Catholic version mm -hmm. uh, of the Mass. The Lutherans are, are using a shortened form, just the Kyrie and the Gloria. Right. He sets the Creed as well. Um, so that's a major statement of faith. But essentially, he's writing his sacred music. He's writing exclusively in German, mm -hmm. so in the vernacular for him. That's an important statement. Uh, and he's keen to write things which the people understand. So a feature of his cantatas, of which there are many, many, many cantatas, and the passions is the use of chorales, German hymn tunes, oh, yes. Yes. so that you and I mm -hmm. can experience in the here and now this, this, these religious ideas, these religious um, actions that he's describing in the passion. Mm -hmm. So you find, a, you find a, astonishing moments when you go through the crucifixion narrative and then it stops as if you press pause mm -hmm. uh, and all of a sudden it's about us we're the people standing there we're the people responsible for the crucifixion we're witnessing it so it's it's very much about understanding the theology and the here and the now and I think those are quite from important. within from within yes very much so well Roger Fry once said that listening to Bach almost convinced him to become a Christian so let's turn to St Matthew's passion can you give us a bit of background, a way into it, to, to what he's doing, particularly to the main characters in the story, Christ, Peter, Judas and so on. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, settings, musical settings of the Passion are very uh, very old. Mm. The earliest ones are just chant, Gregorian chant. Uh, 
and then as life goes on they become more complicated, more complex. But Bach is the first person to take the Passion narrative and put it on a massive canvas, which is what he does in the St Matthew Passion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is his opera, it's his Parsifal, it's, his, you know, his, it's, it's enormous. Uh, it's three hours long. Um, a plain song Passion with a bit of singing, polyphony, would take you about 20 minutes. So, that, and you can see there is a there is a general move um, to make them bigger, but this is a, this is an enormous statement. It's it's a little bit like a, a great Renaissance artist doing an enormous battle scene, which takes up a whole wall rather yeah. than just a small portrait. Uh, he, in his, I think particularly in the Saint Matthew Passion, he is, uh, and it reflects the, the nature of the, the the original text, of course. He is very concerned to explain a lot of what is going on. There are a lot of references back in the scripture. He makes Jesus holy, obviously holy, uh, giving him strings every time he sings. Then there is a string accompaniment around him. That's unusual. Narrative in this period is normally um, communicated through something called seco restative, dry restative. So you just have people singing. This is how Jesus did this, Jesus did the other. Then he said that. And there's very simple accompaniment. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the rest of the music, the arias and the choruses, are the more extended meditations on the narrative. So he gives Jesus this halo of sound. So he's holy when he sings, until the moment of the crucifixion when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the strings are taken away because he's on his own. He's been left on his own. So it's very powerful. So there is characterization here, which is... I would say very unusual. We've never seen anything like this in the passion narratives before. Did it get criticised when it first came? Not as far as I know. No, I think it was. I think it was. Uh, I mean, I don't know what they must have thought when they went to the mm. first performance. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it's it's it hasn't come out of nowhere. Bach writes, you know, nearly two hundred cantatas, sacred mm. works in German, one for each Sunday of the year yes. and the feast days. Mm. So he's on a journey. Um, both the St John Passion and the St Matthew Passion come out of those cantatas and his exploration of faith, how you express faith in music. Um, so I'm, as, as far as I'm aware, it, it, the piece itself was well received, but he himself was often criticised. He had a turbulent relationship with civic authorities because he was nearly always writing to demand. Yeah. Write a piece for this Sunday or write a piece for that feast day. And, and originality always gets criticised. Yeah, absolutely. So yes. Now, it's slightly alarming to hear three hours, uh, and people out there might be thinking, oh, I'd quite like to go to this, but three hours. Uh, it goes quickly? It goes it? very quickly, actually. I find it goes frighteningly quickly, because he's, he is brilliant at involving you in the drama. So, from the moment you start in the St Matthew Passion, you have this great sweeping music, and you're, you're, you're just aware that you're in the middle of something very cosmic. He uses two choirs... Uh, and the choir starts off, the first choir starts off and saying, look at this, look at this, as if they're pointing at a picture of, of, the, um, of the broken Christ. Look at this. Yeah. And the other choir says, who is it? What? Why? Where? Why? They're asking all these questions. So they are us in the same way. Almost that, like a Greek chorus. Yes, very much. And then you have this mixture of recitatives, narrative, the story, arias which reflect on the story, and choruses which amplify, literally make louder what's going on. So the crowd becomes a very powerful thing. The crowd is angry. Bach, Bach for a non-opera writer, Bach does the most amazing chorus writing. Anger, mm. nasty, 
and he knows how to use the German text. He sets it so well that when you're rehearsing it or when you're singing it, you have to emotionally engage with that text because of the music he's written. It demands it of you. So it's very emotional music. And in these more reflective arias, you know, sometimes in operas they can become a little formulaic. Mm. I, I fell in love with this person and she didn't like me. I then sing an aria about how sad I am and, and, and then die. Or, you know, but that'll, no, that'll be three hours. So then you recover, you recover a little bit and you go off and somebody else is horrible to you and you sing an aria about how upset you are. Mm. And then someone makes you cross and you sing a rage aria. It's a little bit formulaic. Bach is much more sophisticated than that. He doesn't always use the aria. Sometimes he uses chorus, sometimes he uses chorales. But when he does write um, arias, like when Peter denies Jesus three times, mm. it, it is virtually impossible not to weep with the soloist who is portraying Peter's emotion. And Erbarmadich, it's a very famous aria, mm. beautiful violin solo. Mm. And it, it's of the here and now. Mm. And there's nothing formulaic. You never get to one of these arias and oh, it's that one again. Um, and I'd even go further, I have a little theory, it's only me, I'm sure academics would say it's rubbish, but in the second part of St. Matthew, when you're moving inexorably towards the crucifixion, yeah. he writes a series of four arias, um, Gedult Erbarmadich for St. Peter, Gibt mir mein Herr for Judas, mm -hmm. uh, and then Aus Liebe, a soprano solo, where I think he's trying to stop time He's trying to stop this crucifixion from happening. And I think he, if he can write the perfect piece of music, mm. it will stop. They're all very different. Yes. Different styles, different emotions. And for the one, the Aus Lieber one, it's full of pauses. Mm. And it's an incredibly slow writing. And it's as if he's trying to pull time back mm. and stop it. Take this cup away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about Judas? Does he get a... I'm, well, I'm fascinated by Judas in the St. Matthew Passion, mm. and particularly what Bach does to him because we see more of Judas in St Matthew. Mm. And of course there's this astonishing scene when he realises he's done the wrong thing. He, he betrays Jesus, he gets his 30 pieces of silver, mm. the crucifixion st um, story starts, and Judas sees this and thinks, oh, I've got this terribly wrong. And he does what we would hope someone would do in that situation when they realise they've sinned. He goes to the priests, mm. and the priests say, I'm not interested, it's not our problem, go away. And because he goes away and he hangs himself mm -hmm. because he realizes he's repented. Now, Bach um, shows us that scene in Restative, and he then writes one of the most toe tapping, <laughs> exciting bravura arias that you can have with a violin solo which is flying everywhere. And this is this is the next aria after Peter has betrayed Christ and sung this heartrending abamity, because Peter's a bit like a puppy, isn't he? He, yeah. he? he gets lots of things wrong, and when he gets it wrong, he's terribly upset. Yes, yes. Um, and here, but here is Judas realizing he's got it wrong, going to ask for help, being thrown out by the priests, taking his own life. And I think it's asking us, it's what's telling us two very important and rather uncomfortable things. The first is that I think Judas gets his reward. I think he gets Jesus back. That's what the aria says, give me my Lord back. I think he gets it because he, he realises he's done wrong mm. and he's genuinely sorry and he repents and he's treated very badly. Mm. 
But it also then throws up the, the, my second point, which is that we're told in the Bible that nothing is unforgivable for the repentant sinner. Mm. Now that's quite uncomfortable for us these days. Mm. Judas repents, yeah. and he gets a musical reward yeah. for that, I think. Uh, yes. And I'm, I, I find that an astonishing statement. It reminds me of the stained glass window in a country church, I can't quite remember where now, but uh, it's a shocking window because there is Judas uh, with the rope around his neck and it caused, you can imagine, mm -hmm. a lot of parochial problems. Yeah. But if you follow the rope up the window, you see two hands pulling him in. Oh, okay. Yes. So the priests didn't receive his repentance. But heaven, did. heaven did. I think that's that's very important, and I think there are some traditions in the East why he's yes. canonised, isn't it? Yes, indeed, because through him salvation <laughs> was brought about. Yes. Now, um, you know me; I'm a sort of late Beethoven sort <laughs> of guy, uh, and so I, if I'm honest, I find Bach difficult sometimes, and. I'm one of those people I just mentioned now. I'd, I'd sort of like to give this a go, mm. but three hours is, you know, how am I going to cope? Um, however, Beethoven, who I'm you know, hugely admiring of, said that Bach was the sort of um, eternal god of harmony. Mm. So can you help me here? Why Bach? What, what's great? I think, for me, the thing about Bach is he gets under your skin... He's not like Handel. Handel will write the most beautiful tune. It'll make you cry. Mm. And you'll just hear it. And in Messiah, we see this all the time. He writes these beautiful arias. And you think, oh, that's just beautiful. He pulls on the heartstrings. Yeah. Bach gets under your skin. And he works away. Mm. And he works around through mm. into your heart. And it's a much more painful process. And it's a more demanding process. I don't hide that from people. Um, he... In his music and his harmony, it's interesting that Beethoven picked up on harmony. Mozart was another great fan of Bach, in, and, and in those days, mm. um, Bach was very untrendy. Mm. He'd all but been forgotten, actually, mm. apart from people looking at his music. So I know it's no surprise that Mozart and Beethoven, two of the most naturally talented people we've ever had, mm. recognised Bach as this great person. Um, he, he. He squeezes every ounce of emotion and every ounce of intellectual argument out of his music. He writes a lot of fugues. That's when you have a tune and another tune that works alongside it. And they exist in contrasting opposites with each other, but they work together. They're meshed together. Right. And he breaks up uh, the tune and he throws it around and gives it to different voices. Um, and he's the best writer of fugues that there's ever been. And fugues are very good for theological argument. So in some of his motets, where he sets the more thorny um, theology of St. Paul, mm -hmm. which is hard to read often, mm -hmm. <laughs> let alone understand, mm. he's sort of working it out through the music, that intellectual process you have to go through to understand the theology, if we were discussing it. He does that for you in the music. In a sort of dialogue. Yes, it can be dialogue. It, argument, certainly. Argument, yeah. Certainly. I think fugue is a very good metaphor for argument, in the proper sense of the word, debate. Discussion. Um, so you're. It's. A, I would say that you have to regard it a little bit um, as if you're going to go on an exploration of, of something of that sort, a, a difficult intellectual argument. And, and is, is this psychologically attractive to us? Do you think because we are unresolved people, there is always this argument running through our blood, as it were? Yes, I think absolutely that. 
and also I think we need that sort of stimulation. Mm. So you have to. It's. I, I mean, for people who are more familiar with opera, it is like going to Parsifal. I think Sir Matthew Passion. You know, that it's similar in size, mm-hmm. um, quite complex theology, mm-hmm. and uncomfortable sometimes, especially these days. Um, and you have to almost just lay yourself open to it. Yeah. So I'm just going to go with this. Take what you can understand the narrative. Again, same with Wagner. It's always best to go in on the narrative, I think. And if you find the music difficult, understand the narrative and then you'll start to see why he's doing the music. Yes. He's using the music he is. Same with Bach. We know the story. That's a good place to start. You've got an in there already. Let the music just come to you and just experience this amazing array of different types of sound and harmony and mm. form. That's helpful because, cause, you know, I go around talking about poetry a lot and mm. people often say, help me to read poetry because this is language but not as I know it mm. and I'm struggling to, how do I begin to, to read it? And of course you have to remind people there isn't one meaning out there that you've got to sort of excavate and find, mm. you know, it's, it's working on so many levels. And I was going to ask you how to hear Bach, how do I go into that space and, and how do I tune into this and, and that's helpful I think I, yeah, it's very, I think it's very important it's about laying yourself bare mm. uh, and, some, and not being frightened to admit that you don't get something mm. you know to come out and say well I really enjoyed that bit but I'm not sure what was going on at the beginning of the second half <laughs> for example yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean again exactly like poetry in all art forms it should never really be a one off thing you know, yes. for poetry you need to you know, you need to go back again. I mean, sometimes the benefits of rereading poetry you haven't read for years yes. is astonishing because your life experience has changed the way you feel about it. And of course, on Palm Sunday, when we revisit each year the the story of the Passion, it is I'm sure you have this experience. It is sometimes as if you haven't heard it before because something fresh comes that you've never yeah, encountered. So it is a, a revisiting, and mm. and you're saying that the music is requiring you to. To be bare and to to be almost defamiliarized with this story, so that you can appreciate. Yes, it again. it's well, it's a sophisticated thing on so many levels, isn't it? You want to know all about the story. You want to have complete confidence that you're not going to be fighting what, what's going on. What's I don't understand what's happening now. Mm. We've got great familiarity, but in a sense, once you've got that familiar familiarity, then you need to lose it, forget it. Yeah. Just lay yourself open to it and and experience it afresh. And that's what, of course, where there's a huge and burden on us as performers to make sure it is always fresh. And that's what I was going to round up. Um, I was going to ask you there, you're going to be on the 21st conducting. Tell me what's going on in Andrew Carwood as he's conducting this piece. Well, it's one, I think one of the most important things I ever do, actually, because the story, it's the central story of our faith. So we, it, it's a huge, um, huge responsibility. Uh, and I think there are two things for me uh, uh, well, I'm leaving aside the fact that it all has to be in tune and together and all the words <laughs> and the notes have to be right. Beyond that, once we've achieved that in rehearsal, it's got to be fresh, it's got to be new, it's got to be now. And it has to be directly emotional. Mm. So if people come away without having found one moment, hopefully two, three or four moments, where they are moved, then I've failed because it's in the music. Yes. It's definitely in the music, so it's my job to amplify that. Um, and it's so you have the, the, the music, you have the performer, and you have the listener, and that's 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 those three elements. 
But I can see you, and our listeners can't, and I can see that you're going to be moved by this. Mm, I will. Mm. Oh, Macadir always makes me cry. I would say, yes. Always, always. Yes. At the at the the resurrection, it's the most the most powerfully assertive music for the soul. It's not arrogant. It's not out there. It's inner self assurance and belief. Mm. It's amazing. Well, you've convinced me. Good. I'll be there. Good, good. And I hope many of our listeners are going to be there. And I'm struck, you know, that you've you've sort of said what Helmut um, Falker said that. After experiencing Bach, people feel there's a meaning to life after all. And um, I get that sense from you speaking to you today. So I look forward to it. And thank you, Andrew, very much. Thank you.